dear friends. Here we are back again. It's Wednesday already, and K9360 is the place to be. This is Jill, and I'm here with you on Wednesdays talking dogs. Next week, I've got some stuff for you guys. Uh, golly, by next week, it'll be May, I think. Um, goodness sakes. And uh, some really cool, funny statistics coming out of our uh, good resource treasure trove of um, veterinary practice news and also this time the Canine Chronicles. So come back next week. But before next week, we have to do this week. So let's uh, dig in a little bit. Um, we've been kind of on a research kick, talking about language, talking about cognitive studies. Um, and this round, I think we'll take a little bit more specific look at what those research studies have to give us in terms of practical understandings about uh, dog training and ownership. I'm not always convinced that what happens in those canine cognition labs is relevant uh, or useful. In some ways, they resemble the congressional studies that tell us that frogs are green, right? But we don't want to paint with too broad a brush. So let's go backwards in time just a little bit. Well, it's probably a lot. Doesn't seem like a lot, but we're going back to the 1960s. Martin Seligman, PhD, and a team of researchers made an accidental discovery. They discovered they could create in dogs a condition very similar to depression. They named this condition learned helplessness, and having identified the causes of learned helplessness, they did additional work to learn how to avoid it. As dog owners and trainers, their research is pretty important to us. So, in a study on behavior and learning in dogs, the research teams reversed the normal order of training and applied a powerful aversive, that would be an electric shock, before teaching what the dogs, teaching the dogs what to do to escape or avoid the aversive. So when they were subjected to erratic and arbitrary aversive stimuli, the uh, fancy word for electrical shock, the dogs learned they could neither predict nor avoid them, so they quit trying to. When intermittent or random aversives occurred early in a dog's training, it had profoundly negative effects and it interfered with all of their subsequent training. The dogs didn't seem to like the training. It took them longer to learn new skills. They didn't perform as well on cognitive tests. They were actually harder to train, requiring more correction. The dogs had an overall emotional state that strongly resembled human depression. And interestingly, the researchers found it was not the number or the level of aversives that created this, but rather their random application. Those same aversives, applied properly, created dogs that were willing, motivated, and pretty hardworking. Because we can apply pressure to keep our dogs moving through the negative effects of random aversive, we don't often see dogs that truly quit. Instead, we might see dogs who are just going through the motions, just phoning it in, but not really applying themselves. And these helpless dogs are never able to realize their full potential. 
The trainer and behaviorist Pat Smith believes there are several main training errors that cause learned helplessness. The first is uh, a correction without prior instruction. Ever have that boss, that teacher, right? The behavior must be created first, then named. We can't just yell come at a dog who doesn't know come and then zap him for not coming. You're on your way to creating learned helplessness, doing that. Another error is a failure to correct for disobedience to known commands, which is really just a failure to follow through. Say what you mean, but mean what you say. And another one is when people correct for errors rather than for disobedience. I don't correct my dogs for making mistakes. I do correct them for inattention. Don't blow me off. But we all make mistakes. We all make errors while we're learning. So I'm pretty careful not to correct for those. What do we need to know as owners and trainers? We need to remember that individual dogs and the tasks we train them for vary greatly. So there's no one best method for all dogs, but all best methods adhere to three common principles, fairness, continuity, and consistency. We ignore these principles at our peril. They're integral to the creation of conditions that motivate dogs to succeed and to avoid learned helplessness. So fairness, one way of talking about that is to say that correcting without proper prior instruction is inherently unfair, and it's destructive to the dog-trainer relationship and to the dog's momentum. Continuity, each training session must build on previous sessions and prepare for future ones. If not, the dog will be left guessing. Consistency means that standards, criteria, must be fair and clear and understandable. And when you change them, you need to do so gradually, not abruptly or randomly or haphazardly. Controlling the progression of how we move through these things is is a critical factor. Understand that if your dog goes charging through an electronic radio fence, the buried fence, and is now able to engage in a play with the other dogs, he gets positively reinforced for that. And it could, he could make the conclusion that in fact the shock on the electric fence can lead to the reward of playing with another dog. Think about that for a minute. If we don't understand the power of controlling progression, punishment can actually backfire. A different example of controlling the progression of their learning. Uh, think what happens when you get pulled over for speeding. The officer might take quite some time as they check your background or write your ticket, finally let you go. You were speeding because you thought you were late for something. Which of the two is the worst? Not being able to get the, to the airport and missing your flight? Or that speeding ticket? Right? Controlling progression is essential. By controlling progression, we can make someone think that the dog is smart to a caller, 
but it's simply because we're correcting it briefly, which dogs, in the dog's eyes appears as a kind of escape avoidance strategy. Isolation is sometimes offered as uh, a way of stopping progression. I'm not sure if that works. Agility folks do this all the time. What I mean is a version of what's known as, quote, time out. I don't, dogs don't think in linear time. So I'm not sure about this. For example, a dog on a downstay breaks the down and takes off over the agility obstacle, whatever it is. And the handler will walk off the course. They'll take the dog out and put it in a crate. I'm, I'm just not convinced that the dog understands the relationship between I made a mistake and I just got called off the course and I have to go sit in my crate. I, I don't know. I just don't know if I, if I really, if I really buy it. You may feel differently. Okay. Um, so what happens when you have to correct? There are some rules to follow. Not everybody talks about this, but let's talk about it just for a little bit. Um, progression. If you put more emphasis on giving or taking away progression, you'll see how it's going, how going on is a reward for the dog. With levels of punishment, it's kind of like classrooms. You have to start high, tough. You can always go lower, but it's generally a bad idea to start lower and then try to go higher. You have to have options for a means of punishment or correction. You have to isolate behavior so the dog knows which aspect or feature of the behavior is being punished or corrected, that this is not some generalized consequence for breathing and taking up space or moving through time and space. Don't allow punishment to become negative reinforcement. That's a distinction we can talk about in a minute. And don't rush. Don't rush. Right? You can take dynamite and an armload of explosives and blow up a car, leave bolts and screws and pieces all over the driveway. Or you can take a screwdriver and take it down to the nuts and the bolts. You get the same result. If you're deciding what to do with your dog, think more screwdriver and less bomb. How's that for your analogy? There are pitfalls of punishment, um, especially if there's no compatible or competitive reinforcer, um, especially when the owner escalates, right? We talked about don't start low and escalate. It can be confusing for the dog when the solution is not clear. The trainer, Connie Cleveland, likes to talk about how dogs are problem solvers and how you want to help the dog solve the problem. And that can be uh, a lot more challenging if you're not sure how they can solve the problem yourself. And then you're not sure how to create for them a path out of their confusion. Some behaviors will be high maintenance and need continual reinforcement. For example, the dog uh, comes when you call him, but you want him to come fast, faster. 
that fast will need continual maintenance, maintenance and reinforcement. Certain behaviors that are attributable to the dog's DNA can be taught, but they'll need continual reinforcement. Uh, one example is teaching a beagle to walk with his nose off the ground, right? For that beagle, and that big old powerful beagle nose, putting that nose on the ground is self-reinforcing. Can you teach a beagle to walk with his nose off the ground or go for a run with you? You sure can, but that's going to take constant reinforcing because the beagle is going to default into, beagle's going to beagle, right, as we might say. And so it's not that his innate breed temperament becomes an excuse not to teach what you need him to know. It's just a matter of recognizing that for that particular dog, heads up is going to be challenging. My dog's heads up are all the time. I don't have a problem with them putting their noses on the ground. I have a bigger problem with them being on constant surveillance. So my skill in perpetual need of reinforcement is take your attention off your environment and give it solely to me. That's my cross to bear, right? And you might be thinking of your own even as we're talking about this, right? So in virtually all dog training, we use verbal commands followed by help in some way to establish a behavior. Help is kind of whatever form of modeling or enticing or manipulation we use to get the desired behavior. Um, the level of motivation makes the dog look for more information, and they'll try to find out if there's anything else they can predict about us. What's key to that motivation? You're thinking food, but you, that might not tell us the whole story. What if we add play to the mix? Let's back up a minute. Motivation is what makes you do or not do, right? Do or not do, there is no try, said uh, famous Yoda, or Yoda said famously. Motivation is, makes you, is what makes you want to do or not do. It can be cultivated, nurtured, and shaped via external factors. A dog can be motivated by the presence of a ball, you can be motivated not to put your finger in a light socket, right? Motivation with dogs starts with play. Play is a less risky way to demonstrate, practice, and achieve strength and intelligence against peers and practice perfect, practice or perfect survival skills. And that second sentence there actually comes from Mark Beckoff, Bob Fagan, um, quoted in National Geographic some years ago about the role that p play has, I almost said the role that play plays, but I suppose you could say that, the role that play has in how young animals, particularly young predators, learn to um, catch, to hunt, to catch and eat their own food. Play is inherently competitive and play exists as the common language between dog and handler. So if we play with our dogs, we can create artificial situations to practice skills that lead to hunting or survival, but also to high scores in healing or protection sports or whatever it is you have in mind, right? Uh, you can run those simulations to whatever ends are the ones that you want to achieve with your dog. There's kind of a 
dynamic of play, if I could draw you a little diagram, there's motivation, there's objective, there are rules, there always have to be rules. Play can build endurance, it provides information, it allows the dog to predict us, and out of all of that we can produce a product in the form of how we interact with them that looks an awful lot like what we would call a trained behavior. Without motivation, information and prediction don't matter very much. But behavior is always driven by consequences, but it's not so much about what genetically triggers the dog to do something. It's about what's useful in the moment, and it depends on what we're doing together, we being dog and trainer. uh, Instinctive behaviors can be put on cue or given a discernible shape, but not everybody recognizes that or is able to do that. Um, The dog may have talent, skills, or motivation that's present, but it's just not being used. It's just not being tapped into. We can also motivate our dogs to avoid unpleasant stuff, not playing a game so much as attaching a consequence. The dog is rewarded by knowing how to prevent and stop the unpleasant consequence. And in some cases, motivation to stop something works better than rewarding the desired behavior. And when you know which is which, then you're a really good dog trainer, right? So I said something about objectives in play. Like any other game, there needs to be an objective to the play between a dog and a trainer. Because how we present the ball, for example, determines how the dog will regard the ball. So we want to ask ourselves before we start, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? For how long? And how do I show the dog that I have the potential to win the game? Remember, games are competitive. So example, if the objective of the game is possession, how is winning determined? We have to explain the objective to the dog through our interaction with them. So you have to create the game and then teach the dog how to win the game, especially as the difficulty or the challenges of the game change across context. So healing becomes a game the dog can win. Retrieving is a game the dog can win. What's significant is that the dog sees the objective of the game and begins to win it. These wins come in small increments because that's the best way to maintain the gameness in the dog, if you will. Gameness just refers to the challenge and uncertainty of the game, like gambling, right? Without rules, the objective is unclear. Rules include things like when to start, when to stop, and how the dog will know the game is started or the game is over. Like a sentence where the capital letter signals beginning and a punctuation mark Signals the end. Pause. Next sentence. Once the rules begin to apply to the playing of the game, we're teaching obedience. Think on that one for a second. And that's something you can just expand on. Handler must initially go to the dog and demonstrate to him that we're going on the training field to play. The handler can make the dog really like or dislike the reward based on how it's presented. If I reward you for helping me with a household chore by offering to buy pizza, 
I can influence you to prefer a local pizza to the franchise pizza based on how I present it to you in words. It's not the package, it's the sum of its parts, first, then more. If we ask for small bits and pieces and elements, we can teach a dog how to go in and out of work, play, work, play. 100% engagement with the dog will shut out the rest of the world. So we don't want to mimic others' techniques. Instead, watch your dog and respond to him or her. People get excited about mimicking a trainer's movements if they th see that magic is there on some video instead of watching their own dog and learning what's, what works best. I tried to teach a client once how to play with her dog. It was unbearably and difficult. It, it was excruciating to watch. She had absolutely no capacity to adjust her response to the dog in ways that engaged the dog again or drew the dog into playing with her. It, it was mechanical and all about technique. I kept thinking about, for example, somebody who wanted to learn to kiss their partner by watching a video about kissing technique. And when their partner says, yeah, but I don't like it when you do that part, they say, well, you're supposed to like it because the video says this is how it's supposed to work. And watching this person who could not initiate or sustain true spontaneous play with her dog, which was resulting in the dog starting to avoid her every time she tried to initiate the play, was both mildly horrifying but kind of heartbreaking. The dog wanted the interaction, wanted the engagement, but the owner's behavior was, was so mechanical, so forced, so technical that it was really putting him off. I think you can teach by not moving. Toy's not active. Dog lets go. And the play resumes, right? You get back in motion, then you can add a command, and then you can work hard to help the dog understand that they're not in control Inevitably, the conflict of shaping is teaching the dog to discriminate. Now you can, now you can't. And from there, work and play become seamless and fully integrated. It's amazing to watch if you've not ever seen it or done it, and it's fun if you can find um, a trainer who can help you. It's, it's, really, it's really cool. I mean, the goal of avoidance training, right, is to motivate determined behavior, while the goal of punishment training is to eliminate misbehavior. In avoidance training, the dogs learn they can terminate the unwanted stimulus and avoid the uncomfortable experience simply by obeying a recently trained command. It's like you give them a, a, an out, right? Don't do that. Direct your behavior into this trained command, and you make the icky parts going go away. Um, uh, Steve Lindsay classifies the behavioral reaction of dogs in conflict into five general groups. He says they want to flee, they want to fight, they will flirt by increasing their vigilance or searching behavior, they'll freeze waiting for the situation to change, um, or they'll forbear, they just, it's that learned helplessness again, right? They just sort of hunker down and take it. Um, 
you may have heard some of these terms, but it's my experience that few trainers and fewer owners really understand it. Um, even when you go to the most progressive school for dog trainers around, you will still get conflicting explanations about some of these terms that describe behavior, which just shows you how deep the confusion really goes. It's just important to understand that escape or avoidance learning is not punishment. It's because of its nature, it's designed to give a signal that's clear to the dog that tells exactly what to do in order to avoid the unpleasant stimuli, the thing that the dog doesn't want. If the avoidance response is well learned, in other words, that the dog has clearly found a solution to avoid the unpleasant thing each and every time, then it won't have any fear or stress while executing a trained response to that. You don't need to be an expert dog trainer to recognize when a dog is friendly, alert, aggressive, submissive, or fearful. If the dog is trained through escape avoidance techniques to obey the command sit, then the trainer can work on the part where the dog has to sit and then stay, right? And build on that little by little by little. And the dog is not fearful because he understands the scaffolding of the training and the scaffolding of his learning, right? Make sense? Are you with me? All right. Hang in there. We got through it. A little more dense, but not always. Not not quite, maybe like we've been in past weeks. Um, you're getting your crash course in canine cognition, how dogs learn, how they don't and uh, what our opportunities are when it comes to trying to influence their behavior to our advantage, and I think to theirs as well, uh, especially if it keeps them safe and uh, lets them stay in their homes over the long term, which is really the number one goal. So dog gets to keep the home he's already got, and... He improves the quality of life, enhances the quality of life in his home, his neighborhood, and his community. How could we go wrong doing that? All right, you guys, that's the end of our time together. Thanks again for being here. Um, wow. We do this together. Our community and our community radio station. And we're so glad for the opportunity. Hang around. Celebration's up next, and I'll see you back here next week. We might uh, lighten up around here a little bit, and I'll bring you some funny statistics that I think you'll um, be surprised by. All right, see you here next week. Take care, and uh, be safe.